Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My guest today is Milton Alimadi from Animadis. I'm sorry if I said that name wrong. From uh, How to Be a Tyrant and his most recent book, Manufacturing Hate. Uh, tell me, how, how did you get interested? Because I always ask my guests this question to get, you know, get to know them just a little better. So how did you get into studying Imi, Idi Amin? And you got done history? Oh, well, well, first of all, I myself am born in Uganda. Uh, of course, now I live in the United States. I'm actually, I would call myself now, uh, Ugandan American. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I I went to uh, uh, college here, university, and then I went to graduate school. And I've lived most of my life actually in the United States. But I'm deep inside me is all Ugandan because that's where I was born. Those were my formative years where I grew up until I actually came. Uh, to go to college here in the United States. So I follow Uganda's history closely, of course, uh, just as the way I follow other African histories. Um, I consider myself to be a Pan-African. At the end of the day, uh, I don't think those African countries individually are viable countries. Those are meaningless uh, maps on the African continent. Most of those maps, in fact, were drawn by European nations when they met at the Berlin Conference from November 1884 to February 1885. And they partitioned the African continent. Um, The major powers of the day, of course, England, France, uh, Belgium, Portugal, Spain, Germany, Italy, all these countries got a piece of Africa. And that's how those maps were drawn. And one of those maps happens to be the country that is now called Uganda. So as I critique the events in Uganda, the dictatorship, I find a similarity in many other African countries. So dictatorship is not unique to Uganda. Uh, I study many African countries because at the end of the day, I, uh, as a Pan-African, I advocate African unity. There should be one United States of Africa one day. Mm. So that's the, uh, uh, to answer your question, that is the reason for my interest in Uganda and in other African countries. And Idi Amin, of course, was one of the more notorious of the dictators in Africa. So let's start from, not the beginning, I would say, but but are kind of beginning for Uganda when Britain leaves in the 1960s. That's quite late for Britain to leave. They were kind of independent, but not really. 
So let's talk about how the union developed after Britain left and they had total self-government. Okay, very good. Now, and one of the tragedies of colonial rule was that the colonial powers uh, never had any plan to leave, you see? They foresaw themselves as just uh, running these African countries um, indefinitely, in perpetuity. So, and I say all this uh, to suggest that none of those countries had been prepared in terms of leadership, how to govern these states, you see? In fact, it is not surprising, it it would be shocking if we did not end up having so many dictatorships in African countries, because the colonial regime was in essence a dictatorship, you see? (laughs) So when these countries became uh, formally independent- They just copied the formula in in a sense. Exactly, exactly. They just inherited the same structures. In fact, many of the laws that they still have are in the legal system today, are from the colonial regime. Hmm. So one of the most notorious one was uh, detention without trial. You could detain somebody without trial. Um, and many African countries, many African rulers who came after colonial rule used that to detain political opponents you know, throughout African countries. Uh, you, may, you don't even have to have any legitimate charges. You, know? you just detain them preemptively and claim, uh, it's sort of like reading their mind, right? They were about to commit a crime. (laughs) So that's why we have to detain them uh, preemptively. So these laws, so they were doing it, they were practicing dictatorship legally, you see, Mm. using the laws that the colonial regime had used to suppress dissent, legitimate dissent and opposition and the growth of nationalism in African countries. And it's quite surprisingly, it was not shocking that then after independence, uh, when the first, the, the first president of Uganda was Edward Mutesa, but the first executive prime minister at that time was Milton Obote. He was effectively the, uh, the, the powerful politician. The presidency was more or less ceremonial but it still had some powers as well. So when they had a, a political dispute between Obote and Mutesa, uh, Mutesa ordered the prime minister Obote to vacate uh, Kampala. Kampala is the capital, and it happened to be within the region of Buganda, which during colonial rule had been a semi-autonomous kingdom within the same borders of Uganda. There were other traditional kingdoms as well at the time. So basically the president said, this is after all my kingdom and I want you to to, to leave. Mm -hmm. So he ordered the government out. So in essence, he was firing the prime minister. Mm -hmm. So at that time, Idi Amin was uh, the commander of the army of Uganda. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit further about because what kind of family they come from, what kind of status did they have in society before he became in the in the army? He was um, 
minimally educated, if at all. He had natural intelligence, but he did not have much formal schooling. Mm. He came from the northwest part of Uganda. And during the colonial rule, the northern part of Uganda was marginalized in terms of economic development. Most of the resources were placed in the southern part of the country. And in the northern part of the country, the British used that part. The education system was not as developed as in the south because the British basically wanted to exploit agricultural production uh, to have people in the north produce cash crops such as uh, cotton, such as tobacco, and also to recruit the young men from the north to be in the armed forces and in the police forces. So Amin was one of those recruited to be in the colonial armed forces called the King's African Rifle. And before independence, the King's African Rifle, of course, uh, was part of also the British colonial army in Kenya, in Tanganyika, and in other uh, African colonies uh, of the British. And they were used to fight either, for example, in World War II, many Africans were conscripted to go and fight, uh, in, even though they had no issues, right? These issues mm. did not really concern Africans, mm. but they were uh, conscripted to go and fight in uh, whatever Britain was uh, fighting its uh, enemies, including Germany, right, in World War II. And then toward 1950s, heading to 1960s, these same soldiers, including Idi Amin, were used to suppress uh, nationalism when Africans were now demanding for independence. So for example, in Kenya, Kenya, they had what was called the Kenya, uh, the, 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 the Land and Freedom uh, Army, fighting uh, to recover their land, which had been stolen by the British yeah. and for their independence. So Amin was one of those soldiers sent to fight against these liberation fighters in Kenya. And he excelled in brutally suppressing uh, uh, the Kenyans who are fighting for their liberation. And uh, even though he had already demonstrated his, uh, uh, his very brutal conduct, including uh, uh, taking revenge against people that had actually been surrendered already, the British ignored all those uh, crimes because he was doing it on behalf of the empire. Mm. So in fact, he was rewarded with promotions. So by the time of independence, he happened to be one of the most senior African uh, officers in the Ugandan army. So in fact, Obote inherited a time bomb. And I mean, kept being promoted. I think by the time Obote had the dispute with Mutesa, Amin was, I believe, a colonel in the army now. So Obote said, no, I am the executive prime minister. I'm not leaving. And he ordered Idi Amin to lead an attack against the palace of Mutesa. So now you have uh, opened uh, uh, armed forces introduced in Uganda's politics. And that's where the problem really began to escalate from there. So on. what Since happens next? What, what's going okay. So, so the, the Mutesa, the president, flees the country. And now Bote introduces a, um, 
a constitution which actually is not even debated or 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 or, or, or there's no referendum he basically has his attorney general rewrite the constitution and parliament approve it and Obote now becomes the executive president of the country so how what uh, is his rule like is it a good president or is he almost as bad as in, in the Yemen? Uh, I wouldn't say he was as bad as he did mean. Obote was, uh, uh, he was also intelligent. He was much more schooled than Idi Amin was. And he was uh, a, a nationalist. But once you introduce that element of using uh, the army to suppress dissent, uh, it's very difficult to put that back in uh, Pandora's box. So yeah. from then on, uh, he used the armed forces, he used the police to suppress opposition, he detained other politicians whom he perceived as rivals or politicians who uh, had supported the president that uh, uh, who had been uh, ousted, Mutesa. And obviously Amin is observing all of this. And he sees that in all these decisions that are being taken, the army is playing the key role. So Amin bids his time. And then ultimately, in 1971, when Obote left the country to go to attend a Commonwealth uh, meeting, a Commonwealth is, of course, the collection of former British colonies who have, uh, I think the frequency is every two years or so, I'm not even sure, they have that conference. So at that, at that time, I think it was in Singapore. Obote went to attend that conference, and when he was away, Idi Amin seized power. How, do, how does he get support to seize power? How does he know that the, the army and the people will be on my side? How Maybe not the people, but the, how did he know that? Very, how does he get the support that he needs to take okay, over the government? Well, 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 first of all, he had the comradeship with them as an officer. Obviously, he would visit all the garrisons. The soldiers knew him. Is he well-liked in the army? Is he... I think at the junior level, probably. He, he has a very charismatic personality, you see? Mm. That is undeniable. <laughs> he, uh, he combines that ruthlessness with a tremendous uh, personality, this great laugh, uh, can, can, can be very jovial uh, one moment, very jocular. He likes sports. You know, yeah. he was a boxer in Uganda, and he was a popular boxer among the soldiers. So yes, in terms of... Uh, relating to the ordinary soldiers in the army, yes, he had a good connection. But obviously, there's a chain of command in the army. Mm. This is what happened. Before Obote left the country, he had already concluded that he needed to arrest uh, Idi Amin. He had uh, allegedly, Amin had been involved in in some corruption scandal. Uh, The other politicians claimed that Obote had also been involved in that scandal involving um, uh, getting uh, gold, I believe, from the neighboring country of Congo and selling it for profit. So uh, that was one of the many incidents. And Obote had also uh, got indication from his intelligence services that Idi Amin might be uh, plotting uh, to, to get rid of him. So when Obote was in Singapore, he sent the instruction to have Idi Amin arrested. 
but the instruction is intercepted by low-ranking officers who are loyal to Idi Amin. And they go and they let him know that, listen, there's a plan to have you arrested. So now that Amin was alerted, of course, he struck first and he um, mobilized units that were loyal to him. They got tanks on the streets. And in those days, when there was basically one communication service, which was the national radio, all you have to do is to send somebody to the national radio and announce that now we have a new government. <laughs> and that's what he did. That's the downside with the Twitter and fa- Facebook. You can't do that uh, nowadays. Exactly. Now nowadays people would tweet it, right? <laughs> Damn it, that I was said I was getting ideas, sir. What <laughs> <No>, is <it's> true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, how the, how successful is what is the takeover when it goes on the radio? Is it then officially declared? He officially is. Uh, a few days later, he has himself uh, sworn in as uh, president. Obote goes into exile to neighboring Tanzania. And um, Amin is initially, at least in Kampala, right? Mm. He's initially welcome and there's celebration in the streets, in the capital, because he had become very unpopular, Obote had become unpopular in that region because of his, uh, uh, when he ended up overthrowing uh, Mutesa and sending Mutesa into exile. That was his region. So when Amin announced that, you know, he had taken over power. There was celebration in Kampala. But in other parts of the country, outside Kampala, there was not so much celebration because he started retribution almost immediately. People that came from uh, the region where Obota came, uh, called, uh, uh, he was a, a Langi by ethnicity, and as well as Acholis. Acholis and Langis uh, comprised the bulk of the army and the police force. As I said earlier, because that's how the British have set it up in terms of recruiting, and this recruiting pattern continued even after independence. So Amin uh, started a campaign to eliminate people that came from Langi and people that came from Acholi. And then initially, he formed a mixed uh, cabinet of civilians and, uh, and military people in the cabinet. He had very well-qualified, educated Ugandans as, as a part of his cabinet, the government. Mm. But this did not last long. Uh, within a couple of months, and within the year at least, he started eliminating them. Mm. Why, why uh, was, was, was he too powerful? Was it too intelligent to oppose him? Is that what? Yeah, yeah, yes, he basically was a person who was not, he realized his uh, inadequacies in terms of uh, the level of education, the level of running a modern state. And he suspected, uh, he developed sort of a, 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 a sort of paranoia uh, and, and imagined that these individuals would be plotting to get rid of him. And it would be not surprising that they would, because when he came to power, he announced that he would not stay in power for long, that this was just a transition process. Civilians would be put... Uh, would be invited back to assume full control of running the country. But after uh, several months, it became clear that he was in fact consolidating power and and, and, and abolishing other uh, avenues of political outlet, like political parties, for example. Yeah. Their activities, activities were banned. The party leaders started getting arrested. 
uh, then people started getting, uh, people started disappearing, you know, people did, and then their bodies would be found washing up in, um, in the River Nile. Or in did the, they suspect Victoria. that it was, was it obvious that it was Idi Amin who did this or was, was it in speculations? Oh, no. I mean, it, it, at some point, you could see people being picked up mm. by, uh, by, by soldiers, uh, you know, dressed in uniform, mm. uh, picked up and just, and just driven away. Uh, so, so there wasn't like speculation was, who is killing off these high, high officials. It was obvious that it was Indi Amin doing this. Absolutely. Uh, he didn't even try to. He didn't even try to hide it. That oh, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. No, this is. No, of course he. Of course he denied it. Of course he denied it. He said, uh, um, "If you look around, there's footage of him saying there's no human rights abuse in Uganda. Mm. This is a uh, Western propaganda." And then later on, it became like um, it was either Western propaganda or, or Zionist propaganda. And this is an interesting thing. Mm. When Idi Amin came to power, actually, the British and Israel welcomed him. Mm. In fact, they assisted in the coup d'etat by providing some intelligence to Idi Amin as well. Because at that time, the Air Force of Uganda was being trained by, 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 by Israel. And of course, the British trained the armed forces, and they actually welcomed him. And you can see the coverage in the British press. They called him, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, jovial, jolly giant, or something like that. And uh, why did they do that? Because just before he was overthrown, Milton Obote had declared that Uganda was going to move to the left mm. in terms of its politics. Yeah. He uh, came out with a document called uh, the, the Common Man's Charter, the move to the left. Mm. That was the document declaring that Uganda was becoming a, a socialist state. Uh, the major means of production and industries were now to be in the hand of the government. It had not yet been uh, implemented, but this was the document that he announced just before he went uh, to that conference. And obviously, the British did not like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> because... Uh, the bulk of all the uh, factories and major companies in Uganda uh, were British-owned, uh, or the British would have a, a major stake in all those industries. And, and then another reason why Obote had become unpopular to the British was because Obote and Julius Nyerere, who was the president of Tanzania, were mobilizing other African countries and saying, if the British do not break off relations with Rhodesia and stopped selling well uh, arms to Rhodesia, which was then ruled by a, a minority European uh, regime under Ian Smith, mm. then African countries should uh, withdraw from the Commonwealth and they should break off diplomatic relations with Britain. So that's the second major reason why the British wanted to get rid of uh, Obote, and that's why they welcome Idi Amin. And then Idi Amin, after he took power, one of the first countries he visited was Israel. At that time, the prime minister was Golda Meir, and he was celebrated. There was a major state banquet for him. But then they broke off this friendship when Amin made a request for very sophisticated weapons uh, for the British to supply him with those weapons. I mean, the British and, the, and Israel, yeah. and, and both Britain 
and, and Israel declined to provide those weapons. And that is how Amin uh, moved to become closer to countries like Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Libya under Colonel uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Well, what about uh, the, the Soviet Union and Cuba? Because as you know, as you know the Cubans and Soviet Union did support several of African communist countries and dictatorships in Africa. So did they, did they have support from Soviet and Cuba at the time? Uh, obviously, they would have liked to support him because uh, once he had become opposed to, to British, it would have been a good propaganda uh, tool for them. Uh, yeah. After all, they're still involved in the Cold War. Yeah. But I'm sure they had done their research and they could see that Amin was not a person who had been trained in any uh, ideological conviction. Mm. Amin was just uh, on, on, on a survival mode. He was surviving by any means necessary. Mm. If you look at the countries that got significant support from Cuba and the Soviet Union, mm. they, they, the liberation movement in those countries were led by Africans who were ideologically trained uh, or were, were intellectuals, like for Lima in Mozambique, the first leader, Eduardo uh, Mondlana, had a PhD. Um, uh, he was very well trained. And when he was killed, the one who succeeded him, Samara Machel, he did not have an advanced degree, but he was also well-schooled in the ideology. If you look at uh, Angola, uh, the uh, MPLA, uh, Liberation Movement, the leader had a PhD. He was a poet, Agostino Neto, uh, an ideological grounding in uh, Marxism-Leninism. So that's why they got significant support from Cuba and the Soviet Union. Mm. But Amin was not schooled in any ideological politics. Amin just found himself president of Uganda because had he not become president, Obote would have uh, had him removed. So it was, you know, Amin, Uh, pulling the trigger before Obote could pull the trigger yeah. against him. Would he have pulled the trigger at some point in the future anyway? It's very likely because he had seen that the armed forces had become the most powerful institution in affecting uh, political uh, discourse in Uganda. So sooner or later, I think he would have still uh, taken over power anyway. Mm. Uh, but that's to answer your question. He could not get that kind of massive support Because the Soviet Union and Cuba, they studied him and they realized this is not a person who had a vision uh, for, for Uganda or for Africa. What about the people of Uganda? How does he govern the people and govern in general when he first came to power? It was a, it, 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 once he started eliminating these uh, trained, uh, uh, educated, Uh, people that he had in and his government. Actually, initially. I've got a free question to that because how did it go when he had these intellectuals on board before he started to eliminate them? It's it's hard to tell because he removed them very quickly. So you could say the initial uh, 12 to 24 months was sort of like uh, you can't access, assess a country within such a short time frame, you see? I, I wouldn't say he initiated anything that was radical, uh, that would set him apart from what Obote had done. What he did, in fact, was to reverse some of the directives that Obote had initiated, but had not yet been carried out, which was to nationalize a lot of these industries, as I mentioned earlier on. I mean, uh, uh, reverse all those 
all those orders. And he said, no, none of these industries should be um, nationalized. And then, of course, that's why they even celebrated him uh, uh, more. But that did not last long, because uh, within a year, uh, he ordered Ugandan and non-Ugandan citizens of Asian ancestry mm. to leave the country. Why was this? Um, why, why did, was this a scapegoating? And why did he need a, a scapegoating? I remember this in the documentary. I don't remember exactly why. Right, right. He did it. He did it because he knew it would be it would be popular, and it would uh, uh, boost his popularity, which was already beginning to uh, to sag very rapidly within a year when he started going uh, eliminating. Uh, perceived uh, or actual uh, opposition and rivals. And because the Asian population, uh, some were citizens, some were not, and they amounted uh, to, uh, I would say about 100,000 in a country where the population was close to uh, 12 million at the time. And, but they controlled all the significant uh, 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 economic activities in Uganda. So import-export, for example, they dominated that. They had the, com- the companies and they had access to the capital uh, uh, to be engaged in uh, the Asians. Yes, the Asians. And they also owned uh, pretty much all the factories in Uganda because during the colonial rule, the British had brought uh, Asians, primarily from the Indian subcontinent, to work on the construction of what was called the Uganda Railway, which was a railway starting basically from the coast of Kenya, running through all the way uh, to Uganda. And many of the people they brought were indentured laborers from the Indian subcontinent. And so after they the railway was constructed at the turn of the century, we're talking in the 1900s, they then remained in East Africa, in Uganda, in Kenya, and in Tanzania. So some of these families were second generations that had to leave, second or perhaps third generations. Exactly. They were all ordered to leave and to abandon their businesses. The British had used them as a buffer between Europeans and Africans mm. during the colonial rule. Uh, so, though, you know, they had a, a, a racist caste system in the British colonies where the Europeans at the top and then Asians in the middle and then Africans would be at the bottom. Mm. So Africans, for example, were not allowed access to capital. So they could not start their own commercial enterprises. In fact, in, in, in countries like Ghana, by the time the British got there, Ghanaians were well uh, involved in commercial enterprises. They had their indigenous African companies that were engaged in trade with, uh, with, with Europe, owned by Africans. The British reversed that and canceled all of that and, and, and starved them of capital. And, 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 and in West Africa, the, instead of uh, uh, Asians, Lebanese took on that function. So the British always wanted that buffer. And in yeah. East Africa, they were the Asians. So by 1972, when Amin expelled them, they control most of the uh, uh, the industries in Uganda. Oh. And Amin knew that if he kicked them out, 
and he gave the businesses to, uh, to Africans in Uganda, then that would uh, shore up his popularity. And that's what he did. And in fact, it was initially welcomed by many Ugandans who actually had also resented uh, uh, the, the, the wealth gap between uh, Africans and Asians uh, in Uganda. So that's why he kicked them out and he took the business over and he gave them to, uh, most of them were given to people that had never operated a business before, people that did not have uh, access to capital or to, to credit lines. And it's not surprising that uh, the economy started going on a rapid downward spiral after that. Was it because of the, I assume it was because of the lack of experience in 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 running a business and running a factory that would cross down? That was part of it. And then also, of course, with the uh, with the with the with the with the general level of violence, uh, and now you have disruption in other uh, mm. functions and other activities. Right? The primary way of earning revenue in a country like Uganda, which is a, a, a dependent, you know, periphery country, like most African countries are, where they produce primary commodities and they import manufactured from the industrialized country. So the primary form of revenue in Uganda was to produce the cash crops. They happen to be uh, coffee, uh, tea, cotton, and tobacco. But now you're disrupting the system. The whole economy is erratic. You have uh, massive inflation. Now farmers, uh, they're paid to produce these commodities because the state has a monopoly on selling them to the outside world. And that's how the state makes its uh, most of its revenue. So it's in fact, it's a form of taxation, right? Yeah. Uh, the farmers produce these commodities and they can only sell to the state marketing board. And the state determines the price that they're going to buy it for. And the state retains the bulk of the profit for itself when it sells it to the, uh, the world market. But now you have a disruption in this system, which has operated for decades now, uh, because now the farmers are being paid with money that is worthless <laughs> because of the inflation. You know, Their money is now being discounted by several uh, factors, you know? Yeah, and and that also presents like a catch twenty two. Farmers start abandoning production because now they know the money is worthless, and they start engaging in uh, subsistence production just to grow food for themselves in order to survive. And that compounded things and further accelerated the downward decline of Uganda's economy. So how how much do people suffer because of this economy and this this system? People suffered significantly. People, uh, people could not afford to take to to send their children to schools. Uh, teachers could not be paid. Healthcare workers could not be paid. Hospitals started running out of uh, out of out of drugs. Every aspect of Uganda's economy became uh, became affected, and that at some point as the atrocities became more widely reported and widely known, and now it also impacts British interest, then obviously the media coverage of Idi Amin changed. Now he became the ruthless killer. When yesterday he was this jovial 
uh, a big giant. Mm. And then some of these countries also started putting uh, trade restrictions against Uganda, mm. including the United States. So because how does it keep the economy growing? How does it manage, doesn't it get managed to keep the economy growing? Uh, could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, how does it keep the economy going? Or does it manage to, are they able, is it not able to keep the economy going? Uh, the, the, the economy, the economy going? Yeah, the government, for the government to keep the country running. Okay, uh, never, barely could keep it, yeah, never mind. Let's keep, let's keep, let's keep, yeah, let's keep that question. And, uh, but he, is this when you would say he, he would go a little bit crazy at this point. Uh, the crisis started from when he took power, <laughs> and the crisis <laughs> just kept escalating and magnifying. And mm. now he starts looking for diversions, of course, and that ultimately leads him to invade neighboring Tanzania yeah. in, in 1978. Mm. But that doesn't go so well, um, does it? That does not go very well. And in fact, early on, before that. He uh, had been put in even tighter scrutiny and more Western countries uh, had basically abandoned working with them after the raid on Entebbe Airport. Mm. And that was when, hey, I believe it was uh, Lufthansa, if I recall, flight had been uh, hijacked by uh, fighters who said they were loyal to the Palestine Liberation Organization, or an affiliate of that. And Idi Amin had granted them permission to land in Uganda. And the uh, hostages... A terrorist, he had granted the terrorists access to Uganda? Absolutely. He gave them access. They landed, and, he, and then the hostages were removed and kept in one of the terminals at the airport. And by this time, um, Amin was being uh, uh, really uh, ridiculed by most of the Western media. He was no longer their guy, right? Mm. But he saw this as an opportunity to be at the global uh, media center once again. Mm. All these journalists coming from all over the world, uh, descending on Uganda, to interview Amin. And Amin is presenting himself now as the statesman who is trying to broker the end of this crisis. And obviously, perhaps trying to milk some concessions uh, from Israel, from Britain, and from the United States. Uh, this is the first time that he's in a position where they have to listen to what he has to say because the hostages are in Uganda. Yeah. And he, and, he, and he milks this, right? Mm. Not knowing that Israel was already plotting uh, a commando raid to Uganda to rescue these hostages, mm. which is, of course, ultimately what happened. You know, the raid on Entebbe. The British commandos flew first to Kenya. They refueled from Kenya because Kenya has always been very close to the West. Yeah. You know, I mean, Tanzania, of course. Tanzania, under Nyerere, where Obote was in exile all these years, resented Idi Amin, 
because the new East Africa could not move together collectively, having an outrageous dictator like Idi Amin in Uganda. But he would never go to the extent of working with Israel to, 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 to help them uh, with the raid on another African country. But Kenya did. So they refueled in Kenya, and then they went uh, and Entebbe, and they struck. And I think they only lost, if I recall, one soldier who was actually the brother of the former Israeli prime minister, mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I forgot his first name, but he was a Netanyahu as well. He was one of the commanders of that raid, and he was killed. But they rescued all of the hostages, I think, except for one who was an elderly lady and had been removed from the terminal and taken to a hospital uh, because she had been ill. I think she was the one who was actually murdered uh, at the hospital by, by Amin's uh, men. So that also was a big blow against Amin's pride and against his army. The army was humiliated. And now there's resentment. Were, were they already hum humiliated with the fight against Tanzania? When the, when no, the last... that came later. That mm. came after this raid. Mm. After that humiliation, there was some dissent within the army, including some of the officers who are now saying, you know what? I think it's time to get rid of this guy. Mm. So he Because as we, as we learned from the history, the army exactly. is always wanted to choose leader. Absolutely. So, so he tries to get rid of some of the officers. In fact, uh, he tries to kill his own vice president, who survives. He's also a general. And, but he needs a diversion for his army now. You know, an army that's humiliated, an army that has nothing to do, is an army that's too dangerous, even for yeah. the commander-in-chief. <laughs> so that's where he orchestrates the invasion of Tanzania. And he kills civilians in Tanzania, and he occupies one region of the country, and he says, this is now a province of Uganda, and they raised the Ugandan flag in that region of Tanzania. How did Tanzania now, react to this? Did they draw, and how, does, how come they had so much better military equipment than Uganda? They did. They, well, they, they did. They did, but there was, uh, the, Uganda did not declare war. So mm. it was, uh, it was uh, just, you know, just attacked overnight mm. without any warning. So Tanzania was caught off guard. Mm. And then Tanzania, of course, mobilized. And I remember that time, actually, I was a young man living in Tanzania, mm. uh, a young boy, actually. I remember Nyerere having the speech and saying, if a snake enters your house, you have to cut off his head. Mm. And that's what we're going to do with Idi Amin. Yeah. So he mobilized and they counterattacked. And it took them about six months to march into Uganda, one city after the other, and drove Idi Amin out of power. So where does and he flee? Idi and what, how, where does he end up in? Idi because Amin, he, he does survive. He does survive. He doesn't get killed. No, he's not killed. He flees on one of the planes that he had fueled, probably ready for a moment like, moment like that. <laughs> with his family and some close associates. And he first flees to Libya, because Libya had actually tried to help him. Gaddafi had sent soldiers uh, to help fight 
against Tanzania. But this, uh, the soldiers that Gaddafi sent were not used to that kind of terrain, mm. fighting in these thick bushes and wars mm. and in thick jungle terrain. They're used to fighting in the desert, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they were not very effective. Many of them ended up surrendering to the Tanzanian soldiers and Ugandan exile soldiers who had also been trained by Tanzania's guerrillas mm. to fight alongside the U U Tanzanian military. So Amin flees first to Libya, and then from Libya, he flees to Saudi Arabia, uh, where he lives for the rest of his life uh, in exile uh, until his death. Uh, a few years ago, before he died, uh, there was a very weird incident. At the airport, I believe it was the airport in Kinshasa, a plane that was, I think the ultimate destination was Uganda and found on that plane was Idi Amin. <laughs> Interesting. That's how desperate he was mm. to get back to Uganda, knowing he would be arrested, of course, if he set foot in Uganda. So in fact, the authorities in uh, Congo, they turned him back and sent him back to uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm. Now, let me tell you one other interesting anecdote. Please do. About Idi Amin. Uh, my late sister, who passed away last year. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Her name was Barbara. Barbara was very close to me, very dear sister. Mm. You know, love her tremendously. She went to uh, to uh, to college in uh, London, mm. and at one point, she needed uh, you know they call it flatmates in the yeah. United Kingdom. Yeah. So she had two flatmates. They were beautiful Ugandan ladies, right? And they mm -hmm. became very tight, very close. And so Barbara noticed that whenever they, uh, the sisters love talking about film, movies. Yeah. You know, they're like, you know, their dad would call every weekend and they would talk about films. Yeah. The latest films, what characters and all that. And then Barbara noticed that Every time she started talking about how Idi Amin had destroyed Uganda, and look, now all of them living in exile in the United Kingdom because of this one man, the oh. sisters would get kind of annoyed. And then one day they said, Barbara, we need to talk to you. Uh, so they put my sister down, and they said, that man that you always denouncing happens to be our father. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow, wow. It, it was amazing. Yeah. Every time he called, the thing that they discussed was the movies, mm. the latest movies. And their dad was on top of it. Ooh. He would hear, and they would discuss, oh, you know, I don't think that she had, she had no clue who was on the other side of the phone. She had no clue. She had oh, no who, they didn't know she didn't know who they, they were talking to. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> So yeah, uh, before we go, I want to ask what what is the situation in Uganda like today, and how is there is there any trace of Idi Amin's today in Uganda? Uh, it's, it's 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 actually more than a trace of Idi Amin. What we have in Uganda right now is a dictator named General Yoweri Museveni, who is many times worse than Idi Amin, mm. but many times much more educated beyond just the natural intelligence he was educated. So he knows how to maneuver the West 
to continue supporting him. Mm. But if you look at the crimes that he's committed in Uganda and in the region, his Amin's crimes pales in comparison many, many times. But up to now, if you ask people outside Uganda or outside Africa, who was one of the worst tyrants or dictators in Africa? Idi Amin would be one of the names. And yet, Amin's crimes comes nowhere close to Museveni's because Museveni has set himself as a very reliable puppet of the West. And he's realized that once you do that, they will cover for you and even so-called independent media will be very lenient on you. And that was Amin's only mistake, not the killing of people in Uganda, but making the West his enemy. <laughs> and that's why he paid the price. But on the ha other hand, Museveni has done the opposite. He's made Ugandans his enemies, but the West his friends. Mm. So, for example, what is the primary reason why they support him? Because the United States fears that a very militant Islamic uh, movement could take power in Somalia. Mm. And now, rather than deploying United States troops in Somalia, there are about eight to 10,000 Ugandan soldiers in Somalia propping mm. up the weak uh, regime in Somalia to mm. be able to withstand the movement called Shabab or Al Shabab. So it's, for doing it's better that to, on behalf it's, of. Mm, it's better to deploy Ugandan instead of uh, Americans, right? Because. Absolutely, you know. absolutely. So the United States pays for this deployment. Mm. You see? We don't so, want to get rid of our own, but like Uganda, that's okay, that's fine. Absolutely. So Museveni gets away with a blank check. Mm. Let me just tell you one or two crimes. Yeah. The invasion of Rwanda from Uganda in 1990. When you hear the narrative, you get the story that, oh, Paul Kagame and the Rwanda Patriotic Front came and they stopped the genocide of Tutsis, and then he brought stability to Rwanda. That's 1994. What was happening between 1990 and 1994? That's the part of the narrative that the Western media always leaves out. Mm. What happened was Uganda invaded Rwanda in 1990, and many of the soldiers were ethnic Tutsi, the descendants of people that had fled earlier genocide in the 1960s. So they invaded And during the war, they too committed atrocities, actually. And in fact, there's a documentary called Rwanda's Untold Stories, where senior officials of the RPF, the Rwanda Patriotic Front, say the movement that's in power now, say, in fact, it was their leader, Paul Kagame, who ordered that plane to be shot down. And after the plane was shot down, then, of course, the mass massacres just erupted. Now, what motive would he have to do something like that? And here is the motive. And the, the documentary explains that as well. Because Tutsi make up no more than 15% of the population. So after they had fought the war from 1990 to 1994, there was a peace settlement negotiated in Tanzania. And as part of the settlement, there was going to be elections held. And if they went to election, of course, the majority population which is Hutu, which is 85, would have ended up winning. So Kagame could not afford to 
subject himself to election. So by causing this conflagration, this tragedy, and then coming in and saying, I'm the one who stopped the killing, mm. then he could legitimize an ethnic minority being in charge because he had stopped a very terrible killing, a killing which he, in fact, had instigated, you see? And yeah. all of this would never have happened had the invasion not happened from Uganda. Uganda supported that invasion all the way mm. till uh till the shooting down of the presidential plane. And this is just one of his crimes, not even to talk about the ones in Uganda or the ones in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm. And that's why I say, if you count the number of Africans who have died during the regime of General Yoweri Museveni, I mean, does not even come anywhere close, not at all. So why is he so, is it simply remembered as because he didn't make the rest is friends. Is that the only reason why? That's, the only, that's one reason. And then, of course, the buffoonery. And that also speaks to what uh, is uh, some, one of the things that I address, actually, in my book. This whole, uh, it's, 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 it's very, I don't even know the right word for it. It's a very bizarre attraction mm. to uh, buffoonery in Africa. You know, the stereotypical African buffoon who, uh, to many reactionary elements in the West, uh, is their vision of what an African is supposed to be like, yeah. you see? And Amin has always captured that imagination, you know, that there's a potential Idi Amin in every African. Mm -hmm. uh, so Amin was demonized and he has never been able to get away from that caricature. Was, was mm -hmm. he ruthless? Was there a dictator? Did he kill many Ugandans? Did he destroy the economy? The answer to all of that is yes. Was he the worst dictator in Africa or in Uganda? The answer to that is absolutely no. The worst dictator in Uganda is General Museveni, who also happens to be perhaps Africa's worst dictator in terms of how many people who have been killed under as a result of his militarism in Uganda, in Rwanda, and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm. And people who want to do the research can find all the information, it's all out there, but it's never pieced together in, in the major media outlets that influence global opinion, like mm. the New York Times, uh, the BBC, and CNN. These are the three key institutions that can uh, make or break uh, perception toward, uh, uh, toward a person or toward a country, you know? Yeah. Do you think you don't know ever will find peace if I have a decent leader? I think so. Because the young uh, people who actually, Museveni has been in power for 35 years now. He's stolen, I think this would be the sixth election now, or the fifth in January, when young Ugandans came out in the millions. And that's why I'm very hopeful and optimistic. Uganda is a very young country. Africa is a very young continent. More than 60% of the population on the continent is under the age of 25. Mm. In Uganda, more than 80% is under the age of 35. And the, 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 the challenger, the main challenger in the presidential election in January, his name was Bobby Wine. He was a very popular musician, and then he ran for parliament. He beat the candidate uh, of General Museveni's party by more than 30 points, and then his star just kept rising. And then he ran for president in January. Millions of people came out. And it's overwhelmingly believed that he defeated Museveni. 
Museveni just refused to yield power. Why do I know the outside world is now changing their opinion of Museveni? Because for the first time, the United States, which has supported his regime all these years, put out a statement, and it's still on the website of the State Department, saying the Ugandan elections were neither free nor fair. So in mm. essence, they're saying Museveni is not the legitimate ruler of Uganda. So that's mm. why I'm very hopeful. Plus what I saw with the young people coming out to the streets, I would not be surprised if Museveni does not survive until the next election in five years' time. I think things are going down in such a rapid rate mm. that sooner or later there might take some incidents that will bring the young people out to the streets and probably yeah. push him out. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. And do you, before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote? Any social media where people can find you? Oh, yes, absolutely. I uh, suggest people go to blackstarnews.com, which is my uh, media website. Uh, also go to Patreon. If you go to Patreon, I have African History Club, where I do like a 30-minute podcast analyzing uh, different aspects of African history. Uh, going back centuries ago, I've done more than 40 episodes now. And then obviously, anybody who wants to uh, buy my book, uh, Manufacturing Hate, How Africa Was Demonized in Western Media, you can go to the website of the publisher. And the publisher is Kendall Hunt Publishing Company. And I'm definitely that. intend K-E-N. to buy it. Yes, that's K-E-N. D-A-L-L, Kendall, and then Hunt, H-U-N-T, and then Publishing Company. I will definitely read it, and I would recommend everyone else to do the same. uh, Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Paul, if ever you want to have another conversation, just let me know. I will definitely have you back one day. And uh, My name is Alan. We are on social media on underworld.h12. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Please like, share, and subscribe. And please take your time to rate us on iTunes. Um, It doesn't take much time. Please give us five stars. You can give us one star as well, but please don't. Please give us five stars. And you can find us on uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever you can find YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. We are there. My name is Alan. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.